A tale of two weather stations. Downtown, minus 6, the wind chill minus 11, with a wind speed of uh, 11 kilometers an hour out of the south-southwest. But then looking at the airport, minus 7, wind out of the south, 35, gusting 49 kilometers an hour, with a wind chill of minus 16, outside 680 CJOB. So at the airport, of course, that's... More out in the open, and Greg, that's already causing some problems on the roads. Yeah, good friend Trevor, who once in a while will send us pictures and or traffic tips at 204-780-6868 at 3.50 a.m. This morning, sent us a picture of a situation, the roundabout that connects highways 2 and 3, southwest of the city near Oak Bluff, two semi-trailers stuck in the snow, the weather... Network or the weather app on my phone, Brett calling it breezy this morning. <laughs> that is not helpful. Do you, do you find that's helpful? It's breezy no. means it's sort of like tropical, you know? That's like pull exactly up on the beach my thought, and Have a margarita. And yeah, like it, the, the wind's not gusting it's in the sense of it's going to be uh, blizzard like conditions or even blowing snow advisories, but it's not breezy. And then when you throw in just sort of that freeze thaw we've had, and the ice on the roads, and then a skiff of snow, as was forecasted <laughs> Friday and Saturday. You know, there's just a bit of a combo effect going on out there. But breezies, maybe, I just don't think that's the right word. There's a connotation there with breezy. Yeah. I agree with you. That just a bit breezy. Yeah, there's a little tropical element to the wind, and there's certainly not that this morning. Although, the temperature, minus six, I'll take that all day long. Oh, yeah. Like, hello, thank you very much. Yeah, the uh, two-week forecast looks pretty good here. Just uh, taking a peek right now. Yeah, so we've got, uh, they're saying zero on Wednesday and then minus six. Nothing, like double, we don't get back down to minus double digits until next week by the looks of it in terms of the the daytime highs. Kind of like that. Nothing too, too bad over the next couple of weeks if that pattern holds. So that's okay. We had a tough week. It was tough last week. Yeah. But it was much nicer even yesterday. Going out for a oh, walk. Huge beautiful. difference. Didn't you step outside and think, ah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> like, that's the actual emotion I had from Friday into Saturday and then Sunday. I was like, what a difference this is out here. And it was, uh, once again, packed. Like, last week when I went for my walks, I uh, was sort of chuckling to myself because I was basically alone on the river trail. Right. Beautiful sunny day, but it was with, you know, like, minus 25 degrees. It was cold. It was cold and it was quiet. That's and- how horror films start. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. I was glad it was sunny because I'm looking around like there is no one around here to help me if something goes wrong. But uh, yesterday when I went out, it was packed, just packed. It's great. It's awesome to see people out enjoying the change of weather. And one more traffic note really quick here. And thanks for all your texts, 204-780-6868. When you can do so safely, North Perimeter eastbound from Main Street to La Jamodier is snow covered. Grant says, pay attention. Okay. So All right. if you've got anything else we need to know about, 204-780-6868. Also today, one of the big things we're going to be talking about as we continue our 680 CJOB Health Series brought to you by Body Measure. We actually have a number of topics on the health front this morning. Loren, starting at 635. Yeah, and it's a fascinating story. I've read a few books on this over the years. One was fiction, and then I looked into it more on the nonfiction side. But it's it's the concept of a death doula. Have either of you heard of that? Nope. I have uh, 90 minutes ago. 
Yeah, you listened into the doc uh, that we're going to play Correct. at six thirty-seven, and so it's really like it's this, it's this, it's not new. They've been around for several years, but the, much the same way you might have a doula uh, kicking off your life as a baby, uh, or you might be a young mom bringing a child into the world, and you bring a doula along to help guide you along the way with not just the childbirth, but with advice on you know milk, breast milk, breastfeeding, uh, pain that you might experience, you know, just things in the initial start of your life. Well, the death doula is doing the opposite at the end of life providing that end of life care and it's not just you know being there for you with uh comforting uh with you know pain management but with conversation there's this real concept around at the end you might be looking for all sorts of things you might be advocating for yourself you might be looking to connect with family you hadn't spoken to in a while and so they're there to provide comfort in a wide variety of ways and uh it's becoming a, a not even a trend just a growing demand out there to have that kind of help when you're going out of this world greg yeah, and it's uh, it's wonderful in my mind to see so much thought being put into end-of-life care and the fact that people are navigating that much differently now than they were once upon a time. I know the idea of palliative care isn't necessarily new, but uh, this is an evolution of that. And the idea of having somebody to walk you through it is... Um, it's heartwarming, quite frankly. I know some people will fall, might find it bothersome or uncomfortable, but I, I, there's something special about this, Brett, and I don't know if that makes me odd to feel that way, but that's that's the way I felt after listening ahead of time to what we're going to hear in about a half an hour. It's a very compelling feature. So that's coming up at 6.35. And then at 7.35, we're going to hear from 680 CJOB's Richard Cloutier, who has put together a uh, feature... Uh, also a compelling feature on the sandwich generation, Loren, and the, the difficulties that many Canadians are having in striking that balance. We're talking about this, you know, silver tsunami, silver wave that's coming across Canada, rolling across Canada as the growing number of Canadians age into 80s, 90s and, and the boomer generation and how we're going to care for our loved ones. And so when you talk about the sandwich generation, you have a whole host of people who still might be raising their own kids or bringing them into adulthood, helping them maybe get off to college, university. And then on the opposite end, they're also caring for their parents and their parents might be in a wide variety of situations. You might have a mom and dad who one is doing well and one is not, or both are struggling. Both might need to get to personal care homes and then they both get to personal care homes and one works for one and not the other. And so there's all these things that we're going through to, to help the next generation uh, with the final stages of their life. And you can put up your hand, 780-6868, if you're in this category, we are now talking very seriously about how to make sure that your mom and dad are getting the care they need uh, in their golden years. And so we're going to hear from a couple at 737 who have a mom and dad in care and opposite ends of the city and, and the challenges they have to get to them, to be with them. And maybe even, I think, sometimes the word one might feel is the guilt you feel, trying to do best for your mom and dad in their final years, but also struggling with your own. So it's a really interesting day here on 680 CJOB. We're going to touch a lot of people with this stuff, I believe. So that's coming up at 735 with 680 CJOB's Richard Cluche, co-host of the news weekdays, three until six alongside Julie Buckingham. And at 705, are we still talking about flashing lights in school zones? We're going to speak to counselor Janice Lukes about that, but in a moment, the latest on the balloon. Macklin, McGarry, McNabb, and Loren, let's get the latest on the balloon that sparked curiosity around the world. 
As you can imagine, fallout continues after the military shot down the Chinese surveillance balloon that had been making its way across both Canadian and American airspace. So we want to get more now from Global's Jennifer Johnson, who has the latest on the investigation and, of course, what China's response has been. They just shot it. Some debris from the downed Chinese spy balloon is now being examined by U.S. military forensics teams. See the smoke coming from it? as China threatens to retaliate. In a statement, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs criticized the U.S. for an obvious overreaction and serious violation of international practice, further escalating an already tense situation. Clearly, this was an attempt by China to gather information to defeat our command and control of our sensitive missile defense and nuclear weapon sites. Questions remain as to why the balloon wasn't brought down within minutes of entering U.S. airspace last week. It was first detected north of the Aleutian Islands on January 28th. Republicans are pointing the finger directly at U.S. President Joe Biden, who was advised civilians could be hurt if the balloon was shot down over populated areas. He allowed a full week for the Chinese to conduct spying operations over the United States, over sensitive military installations. U.S.-China relations are already strained. Disputes over Beijing's support of Russia and its war against Ukraine and military threats against Taiwan and Japan. Analysts say this now proves to Americans that China is a real threat. It showed the extent of China's spying program and what they're willing to do to gather intelligence from the United States. The Pentagon says U.S. defense took steps to block the balloon's spying capabilities. Military jets shot down the surveillance balloon off the coast of South Carolina Saturday afternoon after it traveled across at least 11 states. Suddenly we saw something take off from the jet and knew it was a missile and you could see the explosion. Debris from the balloon spread across 11 kilometers. Local residents are being warned some of it may float ashore. This is obviously a a federal investigation. Uh, We don't want to tamper with any evidence. The evidence may be critical, although the U.S. military has already concluded the balloon's technology didn't give the Chinese significant intelligence beyond what it can already obtain from satellites. But the fallout for U.S.-Chinese relations will be much more damaging. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington. I'm reading a quote from the Chinese government here in Time Magazine online. It says that uh, the Chinese government confirmed that the massive balloon was theirs uh, last Friday while insisting it was merely, quote, a civilian airship. So I'm sure they phoned up the Americans and said, oh, we had a problem with this civilian airship. It's Mm -hmm. uh, wandered into your airspace. We apologize. Please don't shoot it down. Obviously, that did not occur. You have to wonder how good are their actual spy satellites that they're using this sort of rudimentary technology. Let's hang a bunch of stuff off a balloon and fly it at about 55,000 feet. Nobody will see it there. Really, really clandestine operation. No, that clearly didn't happen. And then, of course, you know, Americans will uh, debate uh, how it was handled and whether it was handled properly or not. But I did get some very interesting photos uh, over the weekend from a friend of mine who was flying from Toronto to the Caribbean, the actual U.S. fighter jets that were scrambled to shoot this thing down. Kind of a cool uh, situation. You don't really want to be in the middle of it, but uh, hey, makes for a good story. You can read more on that story at cjlb.com, globalnews.ca. What we're about to talk about has to do with this man in Wales. After 42 years of ownership, this Welsh man has successfully returned a worn-out yellow Thunderbirds T-shirt 
to a UBC bookstore, which then sent him a new garment in exchange for the opportunity to share his story. His name is Mark Gibbs. Here's what he had to say. It, it was a complete, complete tongue-in-cheek saying, look, frankly, this T-shirt was bought in 1981, and I'm not, I'm not satisfied with the product. You can see that it's shrunk. There's holes in it. It's discolored. There's even paint stains on it, and I expected better. It was just to just to take the pee a little bit and have a little bit of fun. And the store very much enjoyed receiving this package, and they did indeed send him a new shirt. <laughs> Doesn't fit me anymore! <laughs> so basically the question we now have is, he held on to this shirt for 42 years, basically until it was on the verge of falling apart. What is the piece of clothing that you have hung on to for far too long and refused to get rid of it? 204-780-6868. Greg Mackling, let's start with you. Oh, we don't have enough time for me to list all the clothing that is almost as old as that. But the best example is my U2 tour t-shirt from 1987. What, what was the date? Uh, November 4th. Nice. St. Paul Civic Center. They also, <laughs> U2 also played the third at the St. Paul Civic Center. I was at the second show on the 4th. And of course, the t-shirt, the, the great concert t-shirts that have all the all the cities on the back and, and a picture of the band on the front. And uh, one of my boys is actually wearing that T-shirt now, despite the fact that it's got what looks like, I don't, I've never smoked, but it looks sort of like either a rodent or a cigarette has, <laughs> has, has created a couple of holes. I said, Alexander, why are you wearing that? It's threadbare and whatever. He says, Dad, it's you too. Got to wear it. Got to represent. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, 87, I can't even do the math on that. Is that 36 years, something like that? Sounds not bad. Right. Not bad. Not too bad at all. Loren, what about you? I have a pair of jeans that are probably 20 years old that, you know, represent better times for the bod, so to speak, <laughs> that are in my closet. And everyone... <laughs> I don't think I can even get them past my knees currently, to be honest with you. It's like, like a lot, like, 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 like surgery would have to happen, I think, to make these work again. But I keep them for what they represent. I have a nightie of my grandmother's when she passed away. It was a bright purple. She was very flamboyant and larger than life. And I put it on every once in a while. And it's got to be 40 years old. But I, it's what it represents. And then on the more serious side... When I was in Afghanistan for the first time in 2006, a couple of days before we left, we were in a convoy that was hit by suicide bombers. And I met up with my sister a few days later and went into the store where there's this purse on display that was way out of my price league. And I bought it and then ruined it oh. in, quick, in quick fashion. Paint, paint and pen got on the side. <gasps> and I haven't used it in a long time, but I keep it again for what it represents you know like that moment where you say like life is fleeting get the things you want and every once in a while i pull it out and it just sort of more of the essence of like the philosophy behind the purchase <laughs> so one is weight loss one is more life journey and the other one is just love you grandma i miss you well, that's cool that's cool sorry how long have you had that purse 20 15 years nice. Lancel. I bought it in Paris. I went into a store where the people had gloves, like you couldn't touch it without gloves on. Oh, it was outrageous. It was the, like easily the stupidest and best purchase I've ever made. Jeff Braun, what about you? Uh, no, nothing fancy like that. Um, the only old thing I, I'm really good about getting rid of stuff. I love just purging the closet and the drawers and stuff because I just can't stand having stuff 
taking up space that I never use. But the one thing I can't seem to throw out is this: uh, the jersey I had from the slow pitch team I was on with a bunch of my buddies in high school. We joined the uh, the Altona Men's Slow Pitch League. We were the youngest team. Everyone went to the the bar after games to hang out, but we were in high school, so we went and got <laughs> ice cream. And uh, our team name was called the Dream Team, but they called us the Ice Cream Team, and they called us uh, another uh, a slur word that has ends with the word dream that I can't say on the radio. And uh, that jersey does not fit me anymore. That's uh, two bodies ago. That was little 130-pound JB, not 230-pound JB. So, uh, but I still keep it. I, I can't get rid of it. We should wear it together, the jersey and the jeans one day. Just squeeze into them for work. Uh, we'll make sure that do we, will we have to have the jaws of life on end. Oh, oh I can't. I'll be half. I can't get into those. It'll be like it'll be a display that nobody needs, but we could give it a shot. Cameron Poitras, what about you? Well, I couldn't possibly think of anything um, because <laughs> why would I ever hold on to something that I don't, is not useful? And I'm just hanging out. So I, I text my wife this morning, and luckily she was awake. And uh, I got a list from her of all the things that she hates that I'm holding on to uh, because I couldn't think of anything. So my cargo shorts with this fabric belt that you have to th- uh, feed through metal loops to tighten. Yeah, She hates those. I actually met her where, when I was wearing those cargo shorts. I don't know how I was able to woo her. Uh, these floppy brown uh, shoes that look like Mickey Mouse. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, shoes that she hates. I have those still. I can't throw those out. And uh, she says, my biggest offenders are my paint-stained basketball shorts that I wear around the house in the summer almost every single day, um, which is news to me. I didn't know that she hated those, so I learned that today. Um, so I'll have to make sure I wear them all the time. I would suggest you go and find those things when you get home because they may be somewhere else by the time you get home. <laughs> Maybe they're gone. I don't even know. I haven't seen them since the summer. Maybe they just ended up in a garbage can somewhere. Bring yeah, that's no accident. Up. They be gone. They're gone, my friend. Forte, what about you? Um, I keep old work T-shirts. So like when I was working at uh, Little Caesars or Toys R Us, I still have all those shirts. And some of the Little Caesar ones like have like s- sauce on them or uh, bleach stains. And like I just I can't get rid of them just because like when I look at them, I'm like, ah, uh, the memories. I'll never wear them, but I just I keep them. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I bet I, I probably still have uh, Taco Bell. Taco Bell. Yes, Demolition do. Man promo tee. Remember really? when the Demolition Man? They, yeah. they had that they signed that deal with Taco Bell, where the I only do. restaurant in the future was Taco Bell. So I have a Demolition Man shirt from work somewhere. Oh, what yeah. size would it be? <laughs> Uh, that probably still would have been a large. Yeah, yeah, maybe even a medium. I don't know. It's funny how Taco Bell was like the move, was like the restaurant that survived them all. It, yeah. was the, it survived at the top. <laughs> well, it's kind of like the, Demolition Man. It's the meat. Yeah. Well, yeah. It can survive anything. Five percent meat. <laughs> no, I don't know if that's confirmed. I, I do enjoy Taco Bell. Yeah, you know what? The, uh, the piece of clothing I'm wearing right now could be representative because there, the, there are two j- massive holes underneath the the like the the cuff. The, yep. So they're like these giant thumb holes, but the the sweater it's a CJOB sweater. They're so comfy, and I've got these makeshift thumb holes, which are now more like entire mm-hmm. fist holes. Yeah, but I I have Lululemon stuff that have those thumb holes. You're you're like yeah, you're, you're, you're like trendy. You're totally trendy. <laughs> but they, they, they just look so raggedy, and I just, when I can't get rid of it. And my other CJOB no. hoodie has a giant hole in the elbow that I've just worn out over time, but I just can't get rid of them. These are the comfiest hoodies I've ever worn. They're too Those, big. They are pretty awesome. I've got a couple myself. The thumb holes make you legit. Like, you should be walking around like you're a runner, Brett. Like, you're an athlete. <laughs> this this, is, this like, is like my base layer. I'm yeah. Go for my run. Just That's getting it. ready for my 10K, my Monday 10K. <laughs> 
people having to balance raising kids and taking care potentially of their aging parents. And on that front, the question of the day from Friday afternoon for Mr. Furnace, don't call them first, you'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace at 204-832-6243. Have you had a conversation with your aging parents or caregivers about giving up their driver's license? 13% say yes, 26% say not yet, 61% say I didn't have to. You can cast your vote on that at cjob.com. And speaking of driving... There are all sorts of conversations taking place at City Hall this week that are going to have you thinking, are we still talking about this? Yeah, they include options for light rail transit on St. Mary's, a pilot project on sidewalk clearing, and the placement of flashing beacons in school zones. All of the above are on the list for discussion at tomorrow's Standing Policy Committee on Public Works. Janice Lukes is the chair of that committee and joins us now. Good morning, Janice. Janice, are you there? I'm here. Oh. I can't hear you. Now I can. Oh, okay. perfect. Okay. Well, when I saw this on the agenda, I thought, hang on. So in 2016, that's when Chuck over at Expert Electric volunteered to pay for the cost of installing flashing lights in school zones. It took about five mm-hmm. years for the first set to go in, and then things kind of stalled. So what's happening now? What are we waiting for? I, to be honest, I had all but forgotten that this was happening because it's been so long. I know. And to be honest, Lauren... I, you know, I, 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 following it over four years was a, was a circus. But, you know, this committee, we've got a new chair. We've got a new couple new members, a new member on the committee. We're going to make some decisions. We're going to address the, it was, it's not even a report. So we're going to wait to hear what the public service has to say. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful. I think under this new mayor, we're going to be making a lot more decisions and being a little more decisive than in the past. And this is one of the topics that we just have to deal with. So how we deal with it, we'll decide that at the committee tomorrow. But, uh, yeah, I remember when uh, Councillor Klein brought that motion forward in 2016, I think you said. But, sorry, as it stands right now, so it's I, from what I read, it's, it's back on the agenda because the police asked for an extension, <clears throat> right, back in the fall to go over this prioritized list. So is the expectation they come back tomorrow and say, here's the list that we approved to install these signs or are we still a ways before we even get to that stage well yeah i mean if there was a list it would be on the agenda so i i I don't know if they're going to ask for more time or they're going to come forward with something else i'm not sure but there is no list there there is no report so when there is no report there's going to be either a request for an extension of time or there is going to be um some other statements brought forward and then the committee will have to decide what we do Councillor, the, the debate or the conversation about the value of amber lights is, and and their worth and usefulness is really baffling to me. I'm looking right now. I'm on Google Maps. I'm on the mm-hmm. uh, I'm on the Street View, and I'm at uh, St. Mary's Road in Cunnington, mm-hmm. in St. Vitell. There mm-hmm. are no less than twenty two zero amber mm-hmm. lights at this intersection, and this is a controlled pedestrian crosswalk where we've been. Mm-hmm been used to the amber lights above. So, uh, you know, four in each direction. Mm-hmm. Actually, in this case, it's six in each direction because there's flashing amber over the median lane in the northbound and the southbound for the opposite uh, lane. So there's higher visibility. But there are 20 flashing amber lights at this intersection. So has the city not <laughs> declared the efficiency and the appropriateness of the use of amber lights? Well, you'd think if there's 20 at one intersection, but if there's 20 at one intersection, to me, I kind of have to wonder, is there a bigger problem there? Because 
how many amber lights do you need, people? You know? Um, listen, I don't know if any of you guys are traffic engineers. I'm not a traffic engineer. I'm going to listen to what the experts have to say. I'm going to listen to why they put in amber lights in certain locations. And I'm going to listen to the list of how they prioritize traffic calming, traffic safety initiatives. So we're going to get this all on the record. We're going to ask many questions and we're going to try and come to some sort of conclusion. Are we proceeding? Are we not? If we're proceeding with how many, where? I know we have to wind this up one way or no, another. I, I just, I'm speaking of winding it up. I'm wound up because I, I also <laughs> thought we decided that pe- people wanted to have more warnings at these school zones. Maybe not all of them, but that there are some locations where you're suddenly in go from, you know, 60 to 30 or it, they, they pop up and you're left. If you're not familiar with the area, they are a surprise. And so is it that when someone came to offer free signs at a cost of a million dollars safe to that person the city didn't want to install them there's not the will or that there's additional costs that the city is worried about because it feels like it's either got to be a yes or no and move on mm-hmm. but this is too mm-hmm. long well and and therein in itself is nothing is free so one component of a of an installation is free there's many other components to an installation right so it's a fallacy to say it's a free installation of yellow lights, of amber lights. The light structure is free, but, and I will get clarification on this, and we're going to try and wind this one up. We've got, uh, my understanding is we have to buy poles, we have to buy replacement light bulbs, that we have to do underground work for wiring and such. You know, I haven't been following this one with a fine-toothed comb because it hasn't come to me to vote, but it is now. And we're going to get all the details, but I can assure you nothing is free. So there's added costs. And now we have to weigh the added costs with other, I guess, initiatives, options. Again, I'm no traffic engineer. We're going to hear it from the specialists and the experts. And before we let you go, uh, Councillor Lukes, uh, what's this about light rail transit on St. Mary's Corridor? (laughs) Well, Councillor Mays, I guess, felt that uh, that needed to be looked at. Honestly, I think that when we did the transit analysis for the transit master plan, it absolutely was looked at, but he wants to to maybe hear it right from the department itself. So my understanding is they looked at the options, they looked at the cost, they looked at the density, they looked at a lot of things in the city of Winnipeg related to light rail, and the decision was made, and I believe Councillor Mays voted to go with the Um, high frequency model and not light rail but you know counselors sometimes they have a change of heart and we'll see what the public service has to say seven years to debate flashing amber lights and school zones and now we're going to talk about light rail transit in association with a plan that's already been approved it's it's no wonder things take forever to get done at city hall janice lukes And there's a new regime, there's a new mayor, there's new optimism. We're done with all this studies and blather. We're going to make some decisions this next term and move forward. City Councilor Janice Lukes, Chair of the Standing Policy Committee on Public Works. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, what is the piece of clothing you will not get rid of? Mike says, I have a 1982 
First concert t-shirt, Judas Priest, yes! screaming for vengeance, and I've since passed that shirt on to my son, who also wore it to his first concert, which, oddly enough, was Judas Priest. So he still got the shirt Mike 40 is, years later. Mike is doing some solid parenting there. That's what I'd like to say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, there's one that's from this woman who bought, I'm sorry, I'm not sure who they are. A blue sweater, bought in 85, has a hole in the elbow and pocket, but I will never throw it away because it has cuddled so many children and has many great memories for my kids. When I die, I'm leaving it in my will for my daughter with direction that once a year, no matter where in the world they live, they have to meet up to pass it over to the other one for the next year. Oh, Wow. That's what a fantastic. good idea. It's like the sisterhood of the traveling pants, but it's mom's traveling sweater, and you'll always be connected, and she's bringing you together once a year. That's I love the sentimental attachment to this. Yes. I The reason I hang on to stuff is just out of sheer laziness. Like I actually yeah. went out and bought, because I have this pair of yoga pants, this black yoga pants. They're just like cheap kind of sweatpants that I've had for, I don't know, 15 years. There is a massive hole in the knee where if whenever I put them on, I have to be careful I don't stick my foot through the hole and make the said hole wider And because I've made the rip bigger. Uh, and I went out and bought a couple of pairs of sweatpants recently to replace them. Yes. But they're still the most comfy, so I continue to wear them. Right. That's the thing. I have a sweater with a hole that goes from my wrist to my elbow. Like, it's like not having a sweater on. (laughs) (laughs) And I wear it. Like, if I'm at the lake, that bad. Every picture of me at the lake, you'd think that's all I owned. (laughs) Loren Bilicek. Like, from the wrist to the elbow, guys. Like, I'm freezing some nights. And I'm like, nope, this bad boy is staying on. I love it. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, Kelly Moore with the Monday Jets commentary coming up at 7.55. In case you're just tuning in, hopefully you were able to hear at least some of the the feature from Richard Cloutier talking about the challenges being faced by the sandwich generation, people who are taking care of their kids, people who are taking care of their aging parents. And uh, Greg Mackling, your reaction? You know, it's a difficult situation because all of us, I think, would like to age in place. Fortunately, my grandfather was able to do that, stay in his home until he was in his early 90s, passed away, was still living at home. But that's thanks to all the work my Baba did, taking care of him and making sure he got his medication. Never had to have home care, Loren, but it was a, a great deal of personal sacrifice from from my Baba, who's younger than my, than my grandpa. And then I think about uh, my grandmother, uh, on the other side, on my mom's side, who ended up in personal care home and in an effort to make sure she was sort of centralized to all the grandkids and her daughter, my aunt, it ended up being convenient for nobody geographically by trying to please everybody. And then you think about, you know, your own home. I know in my house, I've got four or five set of stairs. If you include the front stairs or getting in from the garage, uh, how possible is it for me or logical for me to age in place? It looks like I've got at least one more move uh, before the ultimate one. So all those different things, uh, I think, we're starting to, to, to consider as we, uh, you know, look ahead to making it easier for our kids to help take care of us or, or in terms of uh, looking after our elderly parents. 
And what's the investment going to be? What's that going to look like with your tax dollars or with your own dollars, right? And so we know the Conservative government back in 2016 said they were going to build more personal care homes, add more beds to the system. But is that the answer? Is there maybe a more of a combination that's needed? Maybe some homes, because some people cannot live alone anymore, no matter how much home care they might have or, or family support. And other people might be looking and saying, no, I could stay in my apartment or my house. This or that. I just need A, B, or C. And yeah. so where do the dollars make sense? Because there are a lot of people I know out there that could potentially and happily die in their homes if we just had a few more dollars or a few more home care workers or a few more this or that to make that difference. But what's the formula look like to get there, I think, will be the bigger conversation in the weeks ahead. You can feel free to weigh in at 204-780-6868. And you can also weigh in on our question of the day at cjob.com, by the way. Flashing lights and school zones back on the agenda at City Hall. How confident are you they'll finally get this squared away? Your options are fully, so-so, or yeah, right. Cast your vote, cjob.com. In the meantime, we must turn now to the ice. Greg Mackling, take it away. With the Winnipeg Jets season on an 11-day pause for the All-Star and Player Break, 680 CJOB's Kelly Moore thought it would be timely to take a look back at some of the more significant moments of this season's first 52 games. 32 of those 52 games played have been wins, so there's no shortage of candidates when it comes to selecting a top five. Here are mine with some context for why I think these victories stand out in particular. The 4-1 win over the Rangers opening night. You might remember the narrative going into the season was Winnipeg faced a very difficult 10-game start. Toss in the unexpected absence of Rick Bonus behind the bench because of COVID, and that just adds to the significance of how that all played out. The 4-0 shutout at previously undefeated St. Louis in Game 6, October 24th. Jets had made a pact to not fall below 500. They went into that meeting with the then 3-0 Blues, sitting at 2-3. and three. Winnipeg has remained comfortable above that 50-50 line ever since. The 5-4 overtime win in Dallas November 25th for a number of reasons. Jets ended an 0-7 slide in the Big D. They blew a 4-2 lead in the final two-plus minutes of that game. It gave Winnipeg the tiebreaker advantage versus the Stars in the season series, and the victory came on the heels of a 6-1 beatdown in Minnesota. A 5-1 win over Ottawa in the final home game before Christmas, December 20th. That victory came in the midst of a five-games-in-seven-night schedule that saw the injury-riddled Jets going from coast to coast. Ultimately, it prevented Winnipeg from losing four straight for the first time this season. Which brings us to last Monday's third-period comeback versus St. Louis, avoiding another potential four-game skid, coming off the worst home-ice performance of the season, and going into an 11-day break. So I'm curious, do any of these five wins make your list? Thank you very much, Kelly Moore. On our text line to the feature piece put together by 680 CJOB's Richard Cloutier on the sandwich generation and personal care homes. Yeah, one of our listeners saying formula to keep older parents at home and lessen the load on old folks' homes is simple. 
take care of your parents as they have taken care of you when you needed care. It seems odd, in quotation marks, nowadays to have older parents at your home. Got to break that barrier. Multi-generational homes, Loren, we know are commonplace around the world, but in, in Western societies, they've they've become less so. And, and I agree with this this listener who suggests that, that that's one approach that we can take. It's not going to work for everyone, but I think it would likely work for more people than we realize. It, it makes sense in theory. It's why you do see a growing number of homes with those grandparent suites, they might be called, or in-law suites, right? Where in the basement of your house, they have their own private space. And I think I think I like the idea, but I also know there are many people in those conversations that will say, I don't want to move in with my kids. It's not that I don't love my kids or my grandkids or my great-grandkids, but I still want to stay in my home. And so it's it's not, certainly not a one-fits-all approach, but that is definitely part of the conversation, I would think. Would it make sense to you to move your parents back home with you if that would help out with their care during their 70s or 90s or wherever they're at? Feel free to weigh in on that at 204-780-6868. Maybe you already have experience with this. would love to hear from you. Question of the day at cjob.com for Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace, 204-832-6243. Flashing lights in school zones are back on the agenda at City Hall. How confident are you they'll finally get this squared away? And Loren, listening to Janice Luke, City Councilor, in her conversation at 705, she seems to think that we are. Getting this done finally, sooner or later. But does getting it done mean they'll be installed or that we'll have a decision on whether or not they'll be installed? You have to remember, we're going back almost seven years since uh, local businessmen offered to supply, install, maintain lights at school zones so that people could have a bit of more warning that they're about to enter that 30 kilometer zone around schools. So he offered to supply them and install. And then that was whittled down to just supplying the lights because there was questions about union jobs. Then there was questions about how many lights would be needed and then concerns about, you know, what else would the city be on the hook for because he could supply the lights. But what about care and maintenance down the road? So almost seven years later, this is back on a city hall committee tomorrow, the standing policy committee for public works. We Spoke to the chairperson, Janice Lukes, just after seven. And one of the questions I have is, I'm not even sure what's going to happen tomorrow. Because last fall, there was a list that came forward. The city of Winnipeg asked police to look at this prioritized list. They asked for an extension. That extension is up. Uh, but are they going to come in tomorrow with more information on where these lights could go? Or are we going to see another delay? Here's Lukes. I, I don't know if they're going to ask for more time or they're going to come forward with something else. I'm not sure. But there is no list there. There is no report. So when there is no report, there's going to be either a request for an extension of time or there is going to be um, some other statements brought forward. And then the committee will have to decide what we do. So we're going to get this all on the record. We're going to ask many questions and we're going to try and come to some sort of conclusion. Are we proceeding? Are we not? If we're proceeding, with how many? Where? I know. We have to wind this up one way or another. The city, in my mind, has already declared the usefulness, and I said this to Councillor Lukes an hour ago, has already declared that their view on whether or not amber flashing lights are are useful or not. I cited one uh, pedestrian crosswalk, and I know there are several now, and I counted there are 20 amber lights attached to this uh, crosswalk, St. Mary's Road at Cunnington in St. Vitale. There are multiple crossings like this now where more amber lights have been added. It's 
clear that they've been added for a reason to increase visibility of those pedestrian crosswalks. So is there some sort of hesitation to increase the visibility of the 30 kilometer an hour school zone? Because the skeptics around the city are suggesting, yep, you have the technology, you have somebody willing to aid in its installation, and you're still backpedaling on this, you're still resisting, and that goes down to people now will will just say, hey, this is proof positive that this isn't about safety, it's about a money grab and the ability to generate revenue through photo radar. And my mistake, I said Winnipeg Police Service to come up with this list. It's the public service that's supposed to come up to this list. And so who is, who's within that and how that's going to work? Uh, not necessarily the police that are putting this together, but the overall public service at the city. But what's the, what's the holdup? And there are some people who will use the conspiracy theory that they're still waiting to get that overall reduced speeds on many streets so that they can collect photo radar cash in that capacity and then not worry about a potential loss in revenue that might come with these flashing lights. But if the, if it's all about safety, don't the flashing lights just add to safety, not detract. And because they have no problem putting up uh, the occasional sign in the middle of the boulevard, for example, like with a saying, this is your speed. I think of one on Provence, for example, you can't miss it. And I, I mean, I appreciate that that's gone up there because there's always a uh, photo radar automobile somewhere along there. Yes. And I think a lot of people just forget that, oh, yeah, it's 50 down here. It's not 60. I, I mean, I've driven it so many times that I know. I also remember getting a speeding ticket some 25 years ago on Provence and learned my lesson uh, that it's 50, not 60. But uh, when I see things like that, I wonder why can't we do more of that? Yeah, if, if if the priority is to slow people down, get in fewer collisions, to uh, to reduce the damage done in those collisions, and of course, ultimately, if there are any you know individuals who are hit by vehicles at a slower speed, the survivability of those crashes, those incidents sure. are increased. So, yeah, if you want people to slow down, help them do so. Vince is nailing this one. Vince says, I honestly believe we'll have a water park before these school zone lights are installed. <laughs> Vince for mayor. <laughs> Let's talk some sports here because the Winnipeg Blue Bombers put a gigantic dent in their list of unsigned free agents over the past few days. Since we left the air Friday morning, the Blue and Gold have re-signed three high-profile free agents. Yeah, so it started Friday with Dynamic All-Star Kick returner Janarian Grant signed to a one-year deal. You may recall his Grey Cup record-setting 102-yard return touchdown in that loss to Toronto yesterday morning. Defensive back Alden Darby re-upped with the home team following his return to the club in time for last year's stretch run. He actually left the Bombers for the Tiger Cats in free agency uh, last uh, February. And then, um, yeah... That signing actually led the voice of the Blue Bombers here on 680 CJOB, Derek Taylor, to tweet this at 11.18 yesterday morning. Maybe I'm in galaxy brain on this one, but this feels like it'll lead to good news on Nick Dembski. Committing to Darby means back, uh, the defensive back. All six of them are American. One Canadian on the uh, defense, thus six Canadians on offense, thus can, two Canadians at receiver, which is Wallatarski plus one. Fingers crossed, said DT, more good news is coming. 
that's way too much math for me, but I was <laughs> pleased to finally get the email yesterday and I screen grabbed and sent it to you too because I knew Greg was on pins and needles about the fact that will Nick Dembski finally be signed. So he's not only re-signed with his hometown team, but a three-year contract. Co-host of Jets at Noon, Jim Toth, joins us now. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. And uh, that Rod Stewart song is no longer my anthem. It's now forever young as I try to recapture my youth daily <laughs> at this age. Thanks for having me. How are you? We are good. We'll have to play that on the way out of this segment, perhaps. But, you know, we had Milt Stiegel on just, I think it was just last week, and he said we should be concerned that we haven't signed Dembski yet. But did you have any doubt that he'd stick with the Blue Bombers? I did, actually, because it took this long. And, and I, I think it was one of those situations where at Nick's age and how dynamic he can be, um, I know he wants to be here and, and wanted to be here at the draft when the Saskatchewan Rough Riders took him and, and he went to be a rider. And then when, when he had a chance to sign here, he wants to be here. He wants to live here. He wants to play for his hometown Bombers. And the Bombers desperately want to keep him. But he's at an age at 29 and, and, and this contract um, that he really needed to explore his options and, and finalize some money. He is that dynamic of a player. And I covered him at his U, U of M Bison days. And he was a running back. And, and I think people forget about that. Like, He's not just a receiver. He can run the ball. He's one of the best blockers in the receiving core in the entire CFL. So it's his diversity that makes him so popular. And I think Nick knew that he wanted to be here, but also the fact that he's so dynamic and diverse that that he sort of needed to have some money. And I think the Bombers want to pay him. But when it comes down to the final hours like this and the big names they've already re-signed, there has to be some give and take on both sides. The three years is what stands out to me. I, I wonder if Nick took maybe a little less than, than the raise that he was hoping for and, and got that extra year. And I think the Bombers were more than happy to offer that, knowing that he's not going to diminish at all over these next three years. And, and the fact that CFL contracts are usually two- or one-year deals, the fact that they gave him that extra one shows that, that how much faith they have in him and how bad they wanted him as well. So these signings, uh, Jim, leave the Blue Bombers with just 10 unsigned players, and that's still with eight days left until free agency officially opens, and the players are and, and teams can communicate with one another right now, and I wonder if that was happening, if D- Dembski very quickly realized what his value was going to be elsewhere that, that led him to signing yesterday, but the Blue Bombers have uh, left unsigned. Receivers Rashid Bailey and Greg Ellingson, center Michael Couture, defensive lineman Casey Sales and Keon Adams, Linebackers Jesse Briggs and uh, Les uh, Morrow. Defensive backs Nick Taylor and Mercy Maston. And backup quarterback Dakota Prukop. I think it'll be interesting to see what way the Bombers go on that backup quarterback situation if they don't get a deal done with Prukop. And at wide receiver, a, a critical position for this team. Well, unfortunately, I, I like both Rashid Bailey and Ellingson and the fact that they're Canadians way into that. But I wonder if one of those guys don't end up getting squeezed out just because of the Nick Dembski contract. And that's what it always comes down to. You have a dynamic football team that's been to three straight Grey Cups and won two of them. Players need raises. And, and there's some players like Adam Hill and Willie Jefferson and, and um, uh, Stanley Bryant that probably get what they get, and they know that it's just a matter of, am I going to get the same amount of money because I'm pretty well at the max? But as other guys get raises, and I think Nick Dembski might be one of those guys, I'm not sure on that, but as other guys get raises to keep them in the fold and from going elsewhere, there's players that get squeezed out. 
I think the Bombers want to keep both uh, Greg Ellingson and, and Rashid Bailey. I think Rashid Bailey with his youth is, is uh, at the top of the list. But when you go through that list and see the positions, Greg, the Bombers now have this last couple of days before free agency to see what money's left and somebody is going to get weeded out. It's just virtually impossible. And Kyle Walters said that to return everybody, but if you return the key players and the ones that you can ask a little bit more from like the Dembskis, um, I think that it's a fair trade, but I'm really wondering, especially with the Dembski contract about the receivers of Ellington and Bailey, if the Bombers can fit both of those guys in, in a return. Now this past weekend, Jim, both the national hockey league and the NFL presented their all-star weekends with modified versions of their respective games. NFL went to a 7-on-7 flag football tournament, NHL a 3-on-3 tournament, two Winnipeg Jets in Florida for the NHL festivities. From the Winnipeg Jets, number 37, Connor Hellaba, Josh Morrissey. Now both leagues also had skills competitions. Did you happen to see any of either presentation? I, uh, I watched some of the quote-unquote skills competition. I still like the fastest skater, the hardest shot, the dunk tank splash. I, can you sense how I'm, I just, uh, if, if you're 10 years old, it was an amazing weekend. Yes. Anybody that's in their teenage yes. years. But that's what this event is for, I guess. But it's getting more and more ridiculous. And, and the problem I have with it was I watched um, the final period of the, the final in the three-on-three the effort level these guys put out, and I get it. They don't want to get hurt, and they don't want to, you know, damage anybody else. And it's this fun weekend of stars. Then don't have it during the season because mm-hmm. the effort level there made me look like I belong in the NHL. And trust me, I am the furthest person that belongs in the NHL. But I give out more of an effort than what I saw. Even in the skills competition, guys aren't really trying to win many things. So. I just, it's its for the kids. It's meant to, to do that. So I don't mind the fact that they went with a dunk tank and some other things because that's what it's designed for. But it's tough to watch, to be honest with you. I, I watched it to see Morrissey and Hellebuck. I'm so glad they got to take that in. And, and especially Josh Morrissey, who's never been, and, and sort of get this atmosphere and, and see other people and have a nice weekend like that. But the actual product itself, to me, is I knew it would be ridiculous going in, and I had the, a bigger eye roll than I thought I would at some of the events. But not only that, the effort that the players put out. So, uh, I mean, it's not for me. I watch the game. I, I like the game at a competitive level. I get that it's it's sort of designed for kids to see all the stars all together. But the the skits that have come into it, the the mini plays, and and then the lack of effort is just it's tough to watch for for myself anyway. I'm trying to remember. Sorry, sorry, Greg. I just was curious. I'm trying to remember in watching All Stars of say 20 years ago, was the effort there in your mind in the actual game itself, putting aside the skills competition. Well, yeah, and that's why they kind of disliked it, Loren, because they would score 17 goals and, and win a game 17-14, and, and the MVP would have, like, seven goals, and they the goalies got burnt, and goalies mm-hmm. hated going, going, look, I, I'm in the middle of a season, and then I go and get torched for nine goals in a period. I don't like that. And so they tried to make it different, more entertaining, but the effort level has gone down more and more. I remember the year when Al McInnes got a penalty for hip-checking, and it's the only penalty on record in the history of the NHL All-Star game, and he apologized after saying, I'm sorry, instincts took over when a guy was coming down the boards and I didn't have an angle on him, so I hit him. And I remember watching it live going, oh, my God, did he just hip-check him? And they gave him a two-minute penalty, and from there on, and that was over 20 years ago, it's just come down to this glorified shinny product that it seems like everybody is more more worried about 
um, not getting injured. And that part I get. The part I don't get is just the lack of effort, the lack of like a two-on-one would break out and the defender just stops defending and lets him go in and have a shot. And then the shot itself isn't much there. And so I just think that, you know, if you're going to go, I think teams should understand that there could be an injury and you don't have to go 100% and, and body check and do all this. But if you're on a breakaway, like try to score. If not, like I don't know what you're doing there. So it's evolved over the years. And, and the NFL Pro Bowl has been one where it was at the end of the season and guys used to get hurt. Guys used to get injured in it. Like they had some pride and some money on the line. And now that's gone to this glorified flag football game too so i've never liked all-star games the only one i'll even remotely watch is the baseball one because baseball is baseball like you're trying to get a hit and you're trying to score runs and it it doesn't matter if it's slow pitch or not there seems to be an effort there but the other ones I've, i've just as i've grown older and why i need a rod stewart song to recapture my youth is i've just grown the grumpy old man with these things Yeah, the baseball game, in my opinion, the only one that even comes close to representing the actual sport and the actual game. Jim, thanks as always. We appreciate your time this morning, and uh, you're you're forever young in our eyes. Oh, thanks, because I feel like I'm 97 this morning. (laughs) Jim Toth, he is the co-host of Jets at Noon with Cameron Poitras and the host of The Jim Toth Show, which airs weekdays from 1 until 3 on 680 CJOB. Just a reminder, we're asking you to tell us about clothes that you refuse to get rid of. Taz, Big Daddy Taz says, I have a few things I refuse to get rid of, but I think like most men, I have pairs of underwear that look more like a crappy tool belt. Just sort of flops off each side. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh God. And, uh, well, you know, just because the, <laughs> no, like, the band is like, you know, it's falling it. apart. And, yeah, I, I, and I said, you know, I bet you every man can relate to that, Taz, and I suppose probably every woman as well can relate to that. Like, Loren, have you ever had to yell at, at your hubby to get rid of something? Yeah, and sometimes I just do it for him, and then he <laughs> discovers later that, where's that shirt? And then we just stare at each other, and I was like, you know where it is. It's not here anymore. That's where it is. Because I asked you to deal with it. <laughs> Why is it up to what, what makes you like the decision maker it, on what shirts I he should have much and like shouldn't Cam. have? No, it's like much like Cam brought up this morning that his wife texted a long list of things that she just makes her ill when he wears them. Aw, too bad. And, and so on the opposite end, though, I remember being pregnant with our second and I had this like, it wasn't a muumuu, but it was just a basically like a flowing dress. And as soon as I'd get home from work at like eight months pregnant, this thing went on, you know, like. To all the underwear came off and the dress came on <laughs> and at some point it disappeared and the same thing happened i was like where's that dress i used to always wear when i was pregnant with our second and then he just looked at me and i was like i know and checked it he's like i couldn't look at it anymore it was awful so we all have that thing uh, if you got a fire pit in the backyard, maybe check it if you can't find any of your certain, certain beloved clothes. We need clothes. to do some DNA analysis on this garment. What happened to it? Uh, 
Uh, and on the subject of health, one of the things that we talked about at 735, the sandwich generation taking care of people who have to take care of their kids, take care of their aging parents, aging in place. Uh, great piece from 680 CJOB's Richard Cloutier. If you want to hear that, go to the audio vault at cjob.com. That aired just after Global News at 730. And, uh, of course, as always, we get lots of reaction on all the things we discuss on our text line. And uh, what did someone have to say, Loren, as it pertained to that? Well, it's so deeply personal, right, this decision to either move your parents into a care home to find them home care so they can stay in their home, or perhaps even having them come live with you. And this listener texted to say that listening to your show has brought back many memories of looking after my parents. They both live with me because they both had multiple health problems. Eventually, they each developed different types of dementia and couldn't be left on their own. As I had escaped an abusive marriage, I was able to give them 24-7 care in my home. 19 years later, they each ended up in a personal care home. I don't regret the choice I made, but I'm now facing a bleak reality. I'm aging. I have no family, siblings, children, or extended family, and my friends are passing away. I can see that I will need help in a few years and it won't be available. I did right by my family and have found myself alone in this world. Don't get me wrong. Wouldn't do it differently, they say. I just wish there was consideration given to the hundreds of seniors who are in my position. And I think that's a great point. You know, we all make the assumption, well, what about your kids helping you out or your other family members? And, and there are lots who, who have are in a boat, whether they, because they don't have family, Greg, or perhaps they live thousands of miles from kilometers from family. Right. And, the, and that care can't be given to them in their home. And they're faced with a, well, now what? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I'm I'm I'm. Not sure how to re- react to that other than uh, bless you for taking care of your parents uh, the way you did because that that's not an easy thing to do because in our society now, the way everything is, most people, most couples, most families have both parents working. Not all, but most. And in order to make ends meet, that's the situation uh, that people will be in for a long time. So how do you balance the care that your parents are are potentially going to need. Let's say you go into a multi generational home situation. How who's going to take care of mom or dad in that circumstance if everybody has to work, including maybe the twenty somethings that are going to university and still at home. You might have three generations living under the same roof. But is there any more care that's available in terms of counting on your relatives? I don't know if there is ultimately or not. It's a, it's a complicated situation for a lot of families, Loren. You can feel free to continue to weigh in at 204-780-6868. Now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Canada's premiers are set to meet tomorrow. And it's a meeting which could determine the future of the country's health care system, Greg. This is this is crazy. Uh, they're meeting for the first time face-to-face since before the pandemic. Each province and territory has its own story about why system uh, the system isn't working, but they all want the same thing. More money from Ottawa. Global's Megan King reports on the expectations and the hard lines ahead of the first minister's meeting on Tuesday. This pop-up primary care clinic is one of the many ways innovation comes into play when healthcare is in crisis. I have about 2,000 patients in my practice and I can't take on new patients. And we field calls every day from people looking for a family doctor. We feel really terrible about it. Um, So this is kind of my way of contributing. We need to think about the system where we are today, but we also need to think of where we will be tomorrow. Because part of it is, you know, our needs are different from what we may have designed 
mind a few years ago. So we need to continue to re-evaluate even as we plan for the future. That point reiterated by Nova Scotia's Premier as he readies for a trip to Ottawa with Canada's 12 other Premiers to hammer out a health care funding deal with Prime Minister Trudeau. The First Ministers have been calling for the meeting for over two years, demanding the federal share of health care costs jump from 22 to 35 percent. That's an increase that would amount to about $28 billion. The changes that are really required are not limited to things that uh, a single province can just chip away at. Uh, they're national issues. Uh, I believe in our, our, our public system. If the federal government wants to join me in saving that system, uh, they have a willing partner. Nova Scotia is all in on that. A different tone than that of premiers in Ontario, Saskatchewan and Alberta who have opened the door to health care privatization through expanding partnerships. Our priorities may be slightly different in Saskatchewan than they might be in, let's say, Newfoundland or Nova Scotia. Uh, and again, possibly even different in British Columbia. BC's premier says he's optimistic, ready to discuss funding, retention of staff and improved care. We're very much looking forward to hear the proposal from the uh, Prime Minister about how we're going to address this issue of uh, the federal government being a strong partner in ensuring that health care is there for British Columbians. Trudeau says he won't be signing any deals with the premiers at Tuesday's meeting, instead focusing on improving patient outcome. And the federal finance minister, Christia Freeland, has made it known that the government is in a tight fiscal environment heading into these discussions. Megan King, Global News. So the world we live in is that the provinces get money from Ottawa, Ottawa hands over the health dollars, and then the provinces decide how they want those dollars to be spent. And one of the arguments over the past year from Trudeau and the Liberals has been, if we give you more money, we want proof that that increased amount of money is making a difference. We want some accountability. And as we all know, data in this country is sorely lacking on the healthcare front in terms of how, what are the actual wait times, how long is it taking for surgery wait lists to be improved, and it's different from province to province. So what does that even look like? What would the standard be? Are we talking about setting benchmarks? the provinces have to hit if they're going to get a certain amount of cash or would it be different from province to province? I I, I just now read a whole story on health transfer payments and I'm more confused than I am about the beacon lights at the flashing school zones because there just seems to be all this process in place and it's hard to understand, well, who's deciding if these dollars are being well spent and who gets to say that, that it is or isn't money well spent. So good luck to you tomorrow, Premier's. Yeah, we've seen throughout the pandemic accusations of uh, opposition leaders and uh, those that uh, monitor such things. Uh, Ontario uh, government has been accused of of not spending up to a billion dollars that they got from the federal government during the pandemic. And the same accusations have been uh, uh, launched uh, against the governments of Manitoba, against the government of Saskatchewan, against the government of Alberta. And I suspect, Loren, if we did a deep dive on every single province that accusation has been levied in every single province across the country. It's Mackling McGarry and McNabb. The question we're asking you today is what clothes do you refuse to lose? Do you have a piece of clothing that you just cannot get rid of it no matter how ratty and stained and beat up it is? We I think we probably all have something like that in our collection. Like Peter Mackling with hanging on to a T-shirt for 40 years. From 1983, a sleeveless number that features 98 Rock, Honolulu FM. This lettering is now load-bearing or could it be thread-bearing? 
one of the two, as it is essentially see-through. My wife hates it, as it is not just see-through, but also quite (laughs) tight-fitting. My mom used to give my dad a hard time. Uh, He had these old white T-shirts that he would sleep in, and they were essentially see-through, on the verge of just disintegrating into dust at any given moment. (laughs) Why don't you get rid of these shirts? Because they're comfy. Nothing is comfy. Yeah, you would just wear them to sleep. Yeah. Like, if you're just wearing it, it's when you take those things and it's out in public. Yeah. Then then that's a problem. Then your mom should have just lit those on fire. (laughs) Uh, Bob says, my Ukrainian mother made all three of her boys the traditional white Ukrainian top with a beautiful personalized needlepoint on the cuffs and collar. This is back when we were in high school, 1982 to 84. Beautiful work, but not a lot of opportunities to wear at the time, along with my painter pants or my Spando ballet fashion sweater. You remember the song True? <laughs> yes. And yet when the Ukrainian slash Russian conflict started in 2021, we had a day at school. I'm a teacher, so to support the Ukrainian immigrants coming into our community, I looked in my closet and there, like a shining beacon, hung the shirt. I wore it with such pride when I first wore it to the church in the 1980s, I'm sure it was very roomy and spacious. <laughs> when I wore it in support of the conflict, I was now just, just able to get it over my bulbous gut. <laughs> I have a like a tickle trunk, sort of, of just costumes and whatnot. Some of them have, are things that have been accrued over the years by me, but it largely came from my mom, who worked in the school system, too, as a counselor. And so she left me all these things. But she's petite, like tiny, tiny, tiny. And once a year, it's just an exercise and humiliation to reach into that trunk and be like, oh, I can wear this for Halloween and then not get it over my head. And then, I, then I'm like trapped in this witch's outfit that somebody has to come yank me out of. I don't know why I do it. I'm like, oh, this looks good. And in my head. I can fit that. You're an optimist, McNabb. Ah, yeah. <laughs> this was a tough choice. It's always a tough choice every morning. We can only pick one. Uh, but this one, this one wins on the sentimental value, Loren. Yeah, so this listener says, I have a blue sweater I bought in 1985. It has a hole in the elbow and pocket and paint on it. But I will never throw it away because it has cuddled so many children and has great memories for my kids. When I die, I'm leaving it in my will for my daughters with the direction that once a year, no matter where in the world they live, they have to meet it up to pass it over to the other one for the next year. Aging in place or aging in a care home. It's a conversation thousands of families are having when it comes to what they would like to happen as they grow older and what they would like to see happen with their loved ones. Yeah, here's the question you might be asking yourself or asking your mom and dad or a grandparent. Do you want to stay at home? Can you stay at home alone? Can you stay at home with home care or is that enough? Maybe you're at a place where you realize you or your loved one needs 24-hour care and therefore that's when you make that decision to try to get them into some sort of facility. And we know that doesn't happen easily, as our next guest knows all too well. Jason Mikulishan has both parents in two different care homes in Winnipeg. And we say good morning. How's it going, Jason? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you first and foremost and your wife for sharing your story with us, because these aren't easy decisions, are they? No, uh, they, they, uh, they are not easy decisions. And, uh, uh, obviously, over the last 12 months, uh, as a family, we've uh, we've we've been faced with some unique challenges. Challenges that I did not think uh, that I would face. Uh, well, I guess in the back of my mind, you always know the time will come. But when those uh, tough 
situations and uh, questions and looking for the right answers uh, are brought upon you, it, uh, it really uh, puts you to the test, no question. Can I just, uh, you know, go back then a bit, if you wouldn't mind, Jason, you mentioned the last 12 months, you now have both care- parents in uh, two different facilities. Who, who hmm. came first? What was the moment when you said, okay, we need to, we need to move on this? Yeah, you know, I guess, you know, uh, with my parents, uh, you know, we had one where we're dealing with dementia, we're dealing with, uh, you know, kind of the mental side of things. And on the with my dad, it's more on the physical side. So both my parents were kind of going in two different directions. Um, to say one needed more support over the other at that time. Um, I think they both uh, needed unique support, different support, and we had to look at, uh, you know, different options for both of them. You know, the the yin and the yang just wasn't there anymore. The, you know, this, you know as much as my par- my parents have been together for, you know, closing in on 60 years, and to make that decision on their behalf to say, hey, um, you know, we have to look at some other living options um, you know, uh, everybody wants to do the right thing for their parents. We want them to be included uh, in some of this decision making. But the bottom line is, is sometimes you have to uh, take the bull by the horn and you have to make those tough decisions on their behalf. And, uh, you know, you, you cross your fingers and, and uh, hope you're making the right decisions. Uh, it's, it's, it's stressful. Jason, the reality is that some facilities specialize in certain types of care uh, versus a different facility that might be better at providing, you know, more more home care type stuff, or you know, they just, just a, yeah. a little bit of a little bit of uh, light housekeeping, or yeah. you know, you mentioned the idea of the mental versus the physical uh, issues. But did you ever imagine your parents would be living on opposite sides of the city in order to accommodate them sufficiently? No. No, not at all. Um, you know, we're we're a close family. Um, uh, we, um, you know, we we always, you know, we we spend time together. We, uh, you know, very accessible to one another. And now having this separation is still there's a, there is a pit in my stomach uh, every day, uh, just knowing where dad is, knowing where mom is. The fact that they're not together it bothers me on a daily basis. But uh, I guess the silver lining is is that I know. Uh, each of them or both of them are getting, um, you know, the help and support uh, that they de- that they need. And going back to what you mentioned about kind of the daily kind of support uh, where my parents, w- where we were trying to keep them together when they went from a large home in the Oak Bank area to uh, assisted living closer to us uh, in that uh, Charleswood tuxedo area. Um, it just wasn't working. Um, it just, it was not enough. And then obviously, um, you know, things were progressing for both of them mentally and physically. And, uh, we were, we were spinning our, spinning our wheels and, and maybe even hesitant to some degree, uh, with respect to some decisions that had to be made. Um, but I guess, uh, with, with, with my career choice and between my wife, both kind of in the public sector, knowing, uh, you know, helping and supporting other people, uh, during sometimes tough, tough situations, when it's thrown your way, man, do you feel helpless? <laughs> uh, but I guess the more I talk about it, the more, um, you know, uh, speaking with Rich, Richard, Richard on the weekend was fantastic. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm typically, uh, you know, more on the private side. Uh, but the more I talk about it, the more I realize, Hey, there's a lot of us in this, in a similar situation. And, uh, it definitely, uh, allows me to realize, 
um, there, we have a problem. <laughs> we have, you know, uh, with respect to how do we look after our, our amazing parents uh, as they looked after us one time. Jason, how did you find navigating this system? You know, um, you know, we've all heard this before. We're advocating the word advocate. <laughs> we have to advocate for our loved ones. That is so, so important. Um, like a dog on a bone sometimes, uh, you know, and it's not that it's not that no one wants to help me. Uh, we have amazing people in our healthcare system. We have a little bit of a broken system, or maybe I'm being uh, gentle when I say that we have a broken system, but we have amazing people in the healthcare system and we have to latch on to them uh, and, and really, uh, you know, develop a relationship with them. My dad was in the hospital for five or six weeks and I just, uh, whether it's speaking to doctors, whether it's speaking to nurses, speaking to social workers, speaking to everyone who is a part of the process uh, to ensure that when my dad is ready to leave the hospital, he is going to go somewhere that uh, is in his best interest. And uh, we, you, you can't sit back and just go, well, you know, we, we just hope that the system works for us. Uh, you have to work the system and you have to uh, really advocate for, for the, loved, the loved ones uh, that, that, are, that are struggling. Uh, because if you don't, um, you know, it's, it, it's going to be even more challenging for you, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm, and I'm and when you say the challenges, I'm sitting here listening to you, Jason. I, I'm wondering how much of it should be also having conversations, like those hard conversations earlier on with parents. Because I'm thinking about you know when I gave birth to my children, all the plans mm-hmm. that go in place to bring someone into the world, and you talk to yep. the experts, and you read the books, and you plan the room, and you plan the route you're going to take to the hospital, and what they're going to wear. Like you you think of all these things, and yet for some reason I don't think we put the same level of effort at all into. Uh, our final years as we potentially leave this world. And so is there things that you would recommend, you know, someone's listening right now, what should I be talking to my mom and dad about or my grandparents about? Yeah, no, I think that it's it's the dark conversations that no one wants to have. Um, And, you know, I I started having those with my dad. My dad dad was a planner. My dad was an educator here in the city, uh, teacher principal in the city here for 35 years and educated man and planned and organized and and uh you know despite his you know inabilities physically um you know having that power of attorney uh in place in advance having those discussions you know we a lot of people talk about it making sure you have funeral arrangements and all those types of things that's all important stuff but there's so many decisions that need to be made ahead of time you know whether again that's wills and power of attorney and um you know just the financial component Um, because when it came down to me having to make some decisions on my parents' behalf, having uh, that documentation, um, because, again, where I had my mom, um, you know, having difficulty uh, with respect to, uh, you know, memory and, um, you know, her cognitive abilities were declining, uh, you know, we got to make sure that uh, that documentation is in place in advance because it is going to make your decision as a caregiver uh, or the ability to make decisions as a caregiver that much easier moving forward, whether it's the sale of a home, uh, taking over finances, making sure their affairs are in order. Um, I think uh, those discussions are super, super important. Jason, talk about that financial implication of all of a sudden now your parents are living in two separate places. Uh, it's mm. expensive enough to find, uh, you know, some some assisted living for a couple. And then you mm. divide that up and now you have two basically individuals living in assistant, assisted care. It's not inexpensive. 
it's not inexpensive whatsoever. And uh, yeah, um, I, I'm I'm very grateful, and, and and as a family, we feel very blessed that uh, you know my parents, um, you know, were very diligent with their finances. They both, you know, had long careers, and and financially, uh, they're in a good way. Um, and we don't have to worry about the finance financial component. But I have spoken to people who, you know, I, they, you know, whether it's at work or uh, with with friends, uh, and I can I've raised a few eyebrows uh, of individuals where, uh, you know, I throw some numbers at them with respect to how much we pay per month. Uh, and uh, now with two facilities. Um, uh, it, it is uh, it is something that is a bit shocking, um, but again, it's it's that price tag uh, that you you just <laughs> you never want to put on uh, you know the health and care and well being of your of your parents. But there's no question. There's the reality. The reality for everyone. Uh, some have the ability to uh, afford uh, certain uh, uh, care, and and others uh, just you know just can't. Uh, but again, there are provisions in place where based on your income and based on what you're able, you will pay that amount. So our system does look at that. Uh, everyone's ability uh, is, is different, and uh, but everyone's uh, level of care should be consistent. And it, it, we all want to leave those facilities knowing that mom and dad are looked after. And as you said, Jason, we all want to do what's best for our parents, but it involves a lot of hard work. And so I know you mentioned you were a really private person and it's not easy to share this. But at the yeah. same time, I just want to thank you. We want to thank you here on CJOB because the number of listeners that have weighed in with their own experiences, but also their own questions, I think there's just power in this sharing. So we really appreciate you and your family. Oh, no, thanks for saying that, Loren. I really appreciate that as well. Um, you know, when Richard reached out to me, I did put a little, um, I put a little blurb out on social media uh, with respect to dementia. And it was just, it was some really solid words, you know, with respect to uh, how dementia negatively impacts uh, your loved one and, and certainly you as a caregiver. And Richard did reach out to me. And the more I've been able to, uh, speak out and and engage people uh it's helping me too because uh you know as caregivers we have to look after ourselves uh we're no good uh to to our loved ones if our mental health and our ability to care for them and make tough decisions uh if if that's not all solid and in place what good are we so you know it's 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 this big circle of uh, support that we need. Mom and dad need our support and we need support of others as well uh, so that we, we, we look after them. They looked after us. We're all in a good way uh, because of them and we got to make sure that they're looked after uh, for whatever time they have left. It's got to be positive and it's got to be the best quality of life possible. Jason Michalishan has both parents in two different care homes across the city. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate the time. Thanks guys. I really appreciate it.
most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.